Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter number 7 this morning. Grab that pew Bible if you didn't bring one of your own, and you can also follow along online. If you're using the Bible app, you should see in that little link down below a click to uh, catch events, and you'll find us there. The notes are already published for you there. This is a sobering text, and Norm read it in a sobering way because there's really no way to tiptoe through that text. Last week, as Pastor Darren uh, shared with us, we saw some of the opposites clearly on display, good versus evil. Elijah on behalf of God, and then you had the prophets of Baal and Asherah, totaling 850 prophets standing there on the mountainside contending for the false god of Baal. Very clear lines of demarcation. Good, evil, one way versus the other. This past week in our church's Bible reading that uh, many of you are following along with that plan, you, you came to Leviticus 26. And clearly in that passage, you can see God's blessing promised to those who would obey and God's punishment promised to those who disobeyed. Pretty night and day. The, the balances were weighted really heavily, actually, one way. So the blessing was nice, let's be honest. It was a nice blessing. But the punishment far outweighed the blessing. But then couched right in the middle of that text in Leviticus 26, it's around verse 11 and 12, you see this linchpin to which everything turns on a dime. For the Lord says to his people, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk with you and among you and be your God, and you will be my people. So it seems the motivation, even in the Old Testament, to follow and obey God was not just to escape his wrath and get his blessing but because this God desired to draw near to humanity. I want to say to you on the offset that heaven is for people who want to be near God, not just people trying to avoid hell. Old Testament, New Testament alike. When we come to a text like today's, it's critical that we go into it with eyes wide open to some fundamental truths. This week, I don't know what your week was like, but this week was an intense week of spiritual battle for my wife and I. Uh, asterisk there, we weren't battling against each other. We, we were battling together spiritual battles. We had folks who were in desperate need of a touch from the Lord. Some on the verge of miscarriage, some marriages in trouble, some uh, other crises of faith with family members. Some, it was just, it was remarkable. All of these things uh, we dealt with. And it, it just kind of made us even more sure that what we were doing and what we're doing here at Grace Covenant matters. I want to remind you of a couple of things uh, that are important as we go into this text. H.B. Charles Jr. was interviewed this week. He's a pastor that I love, 
And, and he was asked the question, what's something that pastors need to be contending for biblically today? Here's what he said. Uh, here's what he said. The enemy, Satan, is seeking to undermine three things and, and he's doing a good job of it outside the church and it's creeping into the church. Here's what the enemy seeks to undermine. The authority and truthfulness of Scripture. The enemy wants to undermine the authority and truthfulness of Scripture. He wants to put not just doubts but deconstructing uh, ideologies in your mind and path. The enemy does that so that he can undermine the exclusivity of Christ. And the enemy does that so that he can undermine the message of the gospel. So more than any critical theory, more than any political theater that's taking place right now in front of us, more than a rebuttal of any worldviews that are couched in secular humanism, more than anything else, I, as your pastor, am here this morning to state for you emphatically some fundamental truths that undergird every sermon that I preach, every time I crack open my Bible to read for personal devotion or study and preparation, but they mean a little bit more in light of today's text. And here they are. You ready? Number one, the Bible is the absolute word of Almighty God. It is absolutely truthful. It's without any mixture of error. And it is absolutely trustworthy. This Bible was breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. No prophecy came by private interpretation, but was given by, to men of God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is the Word of God. Settled. Period. The end. That's it. It's God's Word. And because it's God's Word, we find that Jesus Christ is exactly who He claims to be. Christ is who he claims to be, and he is all that he claims to be. He is the truth of God robed in flesh. That's who Jesus is. Jesus Christ, part of the triune God, who took on the form of humanity, being born in the likeness of men, humbled himself, and God highly exalted Jesus and bestowed upon Jesus the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee above the earth, on the earth, and under the earth would bow. And every tongue will confess one day for the glory of God that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is who he said he was. And he's all that he said he was. And because the Bible is true and Jesus' claims are absolutely authoritative, here's the third thing, the gospel is essential. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is absolutely essential. It's the only hope that we have to escape God's wrath and to, here it is, enjoy God's presence now and forever. The Bible says in John chapter number 3, the Father loves the Son. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Paul would write to the church at Corinth and have to deal with all kinds and all manner of stuff going on, but in chapter 15, he says, I delivered this to you. It was of first importance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and to the twelve, and some more 500 people saw him resurrected. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
He came sinless, spotless, bore our sin and shame so that we might be reconciled to a holy God. These things matter, and they matter a lot when you come to a text like today's. As we look at the passage today, Matthew 7, 13 through 23, let's look at these first two verses under this header. There are only two ways to go. One of the challenges we have as preachers of the gospel, not just in 2022, but I think especially in 2022. As a preacher of the gospel standing behind this, we call it the sacred desk. That's pretty old school, but in this vein, I have to be careful. We should always be careful, but I have to be careful not to bind your conscience or attempt to bind your conscience where scripture doesn't, right? I've got to be careful to be dogmatic where Scripture is dogmatic and then teach the principles as they appear in the rest of the passage. Do you understand that? I'm dogmatic that Scripture is the truth of God's Word. I'm dogmatic that Jesus Christ is exactly who He claimed to be. I'm dogmatic that the Gospel is essential because God is. And I'm dogmatic this morning in telling you from the lips of our Savior there are only two ways to go. Let's look at the verse together. I want to see if you see what I see. Do you see it there? There are two gates entered by the narrow gate. There are two ways mentioned there. There are two destinations and two crowds. Let's see if you can pick them out with me. Now listen, if any of the kids are left over from last week, the answer is not 450, so please don't scream that out loud. Here's, here, let's see if we can do some response together. Okay, I see a narrow gate and I see a wide gate. Okay, good. I see a way that is easy and I see a way that is hard. Well, this sounds inviting. I see two destinations as well. I see one destination that says destruction and then do you see it, the hard that leads to, what's the other destination? Life. And finally, I see two crowds. Spoiler alert, your answer is the last word of the verse. One crowd is the many, and one crowd is the few. Let's look at those two gates together. There's a narrow gate, the Bible says, that leads to life. And there's a broad gate that leads to destruction. The narrow gate is a gate of surrender. The broad gate is a gate of self Sufficiency. The narrow gate, surrender. Broad, self-sufficiency. You say, well, where is that at in Scripture? Give me some more Scripture for that. In John, chapter number 10, Jesus said unto them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door, that word also translates, the gate. I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I came that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. Jesus is beginning to draw the Sermon on the Mount to a close, and he's making it extremely abundantly clear what's at stake here. I'm the way to go. Come to the Father through me. There's another verse we'll get to. You know it, John 14. We'll get there. 
But he's saying, I'm the gate. I'm the door. You're going to have to surrender and abandon all hope of your self-sufficiency if you're going to come through the narrow gate. Do you see why it's narrow? Broad, a wide gate leads to destruction. And, and these people that hint at these other gates, some people will look, young people especially, might look at Christianity and say, you know what, that looks like a trade-off. I'm going to do without this. I'm going to do without that. I'm going to do without this. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 you've got it backwards. This is what living really is. Everything else steals from you and destroys everything that you were made for. Two gates, two ways, or two lifestyles, hard and easy. The hard way leads to life, and the easy way leads to destruction. The difficult way is the way of self-denial. It doesn't come naturally that we would deny ourselves. We're always looking out for number one. But God's saying this is the hard way, self-denial. The other way is the easy way, the comfortable way, the popular way, the way of self. One way leads to life, one way to destruction. True righteousness leads to self-denial. Jesus said in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Wow. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits its soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Is popularity worth your soul? Is entertainment, culture worth your soul? Is you having fun in a moment because you don't know what real living is? Is that worth your soul? Is your open rebellion to a holy God worth your soul? I'm going to protect the, the characters involved, if you will. But just yesterday, I had the privilege to sit with a man that I love. He's my one. Our men's and women discipleship groups have a one. What is that? Who's your one? Who's the one person you're praying for, you're investing in, you're inviting because you want to see them come to Jesus. He was my one. I set up a time yesterday to sit down with my one and talk to him. We had a conversation. And I asked the question, how is your soul? It's a good question to ask. Ask that question to somebody you want to talk to. And then when they give you an answer, say, what do you mean? Whatever they responded. How do you know? You'll find yourself presenting the gospel in no time flat. Jesus says your soul is worth something to God and it's worth nothing to the thieves and robbers that would pull you away from Christ. Serious message this morning. I hope I'm conveying it in the tone. Two gates, two ways to live, two destinations. Life, that's eternity with Christ. We hear much about heaven, some of it accurate and biblical, some of it not, some of it hallmark, right? There's hallmark and there's Bible about heaven, I, I guess is the way to say it. Um, there's a lot of folk theology about heaven. 
I do not believe that the NASCAR racers are racing around the racetrack in heaven, right? I don't think I can find any scripture to support that, that have checked out. Um, the Bible has much to say about the place called heaven, but eternity with Christ is more than just heaven because the Bible also speaks of a new heaven and a new earth, that one day the earth will be made new. And so we will rule and reign with Christ for all eternity as believers, which means we will be on heaven and on earth somehow. Weird. You want me to get into all that? I'm not ready to. It's just, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of awesome the way that plays out. Life with Christ, though, heaven and eternity with Christ is for people who want to be with Christ in all eternity, who've been made new by the blood of the Lamb. And then there is the way of destruction, and that's eternity in a place called hell. Jesus Christ has more to say about hell than any other person in Scripture. He is the greatest theologian on eternal suffering in the Bible. Yeah, this same wonderful, precious, loving Jesus that the progressive and liberal crowd wants us to listen to his teaching, they seem to always omit their teaching on eternity. Just highlight a social moment or impact. It was Jesus that compared hell to the valley of Hinnom, which was near Jerusalem, also called Gehenna. It was Jesus that pointed their attention to this huge pile of rubbish outside of the town where this smoldering fire that was constantly kept burning burned the trash and the refuse of the people, also the sewage of the people, and the dead bodies of the people were constantly burning outside of the town. You didn't go near it without the stench hitting you. He compared hell, Jesus did, to a prison. Jesus compared hell to outer and utter darkness. Jesus, our precious, loving Savior, Jesus Christ, the same Jesus that said, let the little children come unto me, said that hell was a fire more than 20 times in his preaching and teaching. Jesus taught clearly there's no escape from the place of hell. Go read the account of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke chapter number 16. I don't have time to go there this morning. I think you get the sobering reality. I hope that you hear the weight of this. Jesus, when he mentioned it, constantly was warning about it. He was never excited about anybody suffering for eternity. He was calling men and women and boys and girls to follow him, to choose Jesus, to come to the way and to the fountain of life. There may not be a way out of hell once you get there, but I want to tell you something. There's a way to avoid hell while you're here. The Bible says in John chapter number 5, verse 24, Jesus speaking says, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. We get to escape this and receive God's mercy while we are here. Wow, what a promise. But you can only pass from death to life in this life before entering an irreversible chamber of unspeakable woe. There are only two destinations. And the way that you choose right now, what you do with Jesus Christ right now, affects now and eternity. In evangelism, we used to say, you need Jesus because you just might die tonight and stand before him. And I stand before you this morning as your pastor and say, that's absolutely true. But can I give you another sweet side of that promise? You need Jesus because you might live to see tomorrow. 
And you need everything he's got to help you to live in a way to bring glory and honor to this God that loves you that much. Finally, I mentioned two gates, two ways, two destinations, and two crowds. Not finally in the message, finally in this first section of the passage this morning. Two crowds, the few and the many. The few on the road to life and the many on the road to destruction. The road that leads to destruction is large, it is attractive, and it is well-traveled. D.A. Carson writes this, hear me church, ideologically this road is not narrow in its thinking. It's very, I love this, catch word of the day, open-minded. Huh? Yeah? Doesn't that sound good? Politically correct? Keep yourself open-minded. Okay? Morally, so ideologically it's open-minded. Morally it's not restricted. There are very few rules. Virtually anything goes. Don't believe me? Do you have a television? I mean, like, oh, we only stream. How's that going for you, morally? Anything goes in this culture. Broad is this road. Spiritually, it's, oh, here's a beautiful buzzword. Ready? Inclusive. Yeah. Those on this road argue that wide is the way that leads to heaven. We're all God's children. Don't you love when politicians say that? I hope that when you hear politicians say that, part of you goes, like, we're all God's creation. Yes. But only the redeemed are described as children of God. But spiritually, this is inclusive. It's a, it's a road that says, hey, take the left, take the right, stay in the center. It doesn't matter. We're all headed to the same place. We're all going to heaven. A loving God would never send anyone to hell. Let me tell you about the crowd and the popularity and the wideness of this. It's described in 2 Timothy 3. Like, brothers and sisters, hear me, friends joining us this morning online. I know this is serious preaching. It's about as old school as you can get. It's not hellfire and brimstone yet, but I'm just here to tell you this morning, this stuff matters. It's later than you think. And in the last days, here's the description of the broad road. Lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and then trying to pull all that off as if they're in the right and godlier than the rest of us. So they've got an appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Listen to me carefully, church family. All roads do lead to God but only one leads to his forgiveness. The rest lead to its judgment. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. The Bible says in Acts chapter number four, there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men which we must be saved. First Timothy two says there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. There are two ways to go, but there's only one way to heaven. One way to the Father. The next passage of scripture that was read this morning, I think, points to two schools of thought. I won't belabor these texts. I'll spend a few moments on the third section this morning. Two schools of thought. 
I want to just look at verse 15. We'll put it on the screen. Beware of false prophets, the Bible says, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. These are the words dripping off of our, the lips of our loving Savior. There are two types of teachers, two types of preachers, two types of ideologies, two types of worldviews mentioned here. One is anchored to the truth, and one is anchored to a lie. Then Jesus unpacks it with a picture of the tree and bearing good fruit and a bad tree bearing bad fruit. Hear me, church family. False teachers teach a false gospel. Bad doctrine and worldly living are the marks of false prophets. Sound doctrine and holy living are the marks of true prophets. The choice here is not that we take on ourselves the role of heresy hunters. That's not what God's calling us to be. Here's what he's calling us to do, to taste and to stay connected to the tree of life, the tree of truth, and to stay away from the diseased tree of death and destruction. Here's some of the fruit of those bad prophets, those bad actors, those false prophets. Some muddle or distort the gospel so badly, they make it so hard for sinners to get to Jesus. I mean, they've hidden the gate. They've got all these rules and hoops and regulations and you've got to do this and that. It's like you've got to get your life perfect before you're ready to come to Jesus. That's not the gospel. That's not the way the Bible says this works. Others still try to make it out that the way is actually much broader than Jesus' plan. You know, you can just go, uh-huh. If somebody else says something right, you can sign a card, check a box, and you're as good as in heaven. You've got your get-out-of-hell-free ticket because of some moment at some event some years ago. That's not what the Bible says. But I think the worst offenders are those who dare, who dare with Bibles they claim in their hands. I don't know how they claim that. But who would dare to contradict our precious Lord, truth with flesh on and claim that the broad road does not lead to destruction. These are spineless mouthpieces of Satan himself who would say quite matter-of-factly, and as if they're doing you a favor, that all roads lead to heaven. They are on their way to hell, and they're taking you with them. And they're not scared about it. The destiny of false prophets, it's signed, sealed, and delivered by God himself. God said they don't know him, they deny him. Titus 1 says they're detestable and disobedient and unfit for any good work. Matthew 3 says the axe needs to be laid to the root so they can be cut down and thrown into the fire. Am I mincing words? Is it getting through? This stuff matters. Plain church, those days are gone. God never really tolerated that, but if, if you can still under the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, like that part, not so crazy about today's part. It's all from Christ. It's the same sermon. Paul had to deal with this in the church at Corinth and said, I'm, I'm amazed at how quickly you tolerate these guys. He didn't commission anybody to be a heresy hunter, but said, you should know the real gospel. The choice for us here, the call for us here is to eat from the tree of life, the good tree, to be tapped into the right source, to follow Jesus. And guess where you find out how to follow Jesus? In the pages of scripture, not based on how you feel in the morning. 
We follow Jesus based on what he's laid out in his word. You stay in the truth of God's word. You surround yourself with a culture of biblically literate, disciple-making disciples whose source text is God's word, and you'll be able to detect, you'll be able to resist false teachers and false prophets. Two ways to go, two schools of thought. And finally this morning, there are only two ways or two conditions to stand before God. One of the most haunting texts in all of Scripture. Every pastor I talk to, we all get a bead of sweat when we come to this text. And not because we're afraid necessarily of our own self, but we just know how easy it is to fool everybody. And how easy it is to play church and to say the right things and to even do churchy things in ways that point back to Jesus and still miss it. What's the text? This one I won't skip. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? That's spectacular. But then I, the judge, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Leave the verse up for just a moment. I want you to notice something. Look at all those good works and he calls them lawless. So, so the, the progressive side, which is a heretical side, by the way, of Christianity, just in case you were wondering what my position is, says, but you know what? Jesus loves when good is done on the earth. Not according to this. Jesus loved when good is done by his kids, doing it to bring him glory and honor. Because, you see, it's possible to deceive ourselves by doing good. If we do enough good, maybe we'll weight the balances in our favor. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, God will take note of how much good, how much money I gave away, how much good I did in the community, how much good I did here, there. Jesus says, nope, you can even do that and slap a Christian name on it. You can do it through the church. You can channel your nonprofit giving through the church and still miss it. One of the most haunting passages. Listen to me, it's entirely possible to sound entirely Christian and be entirely lost. There are two conditions. Here they are. Converted or condemned. That's it. That's how you stand before God on judgment. Converted or condemned. There's no third way. There's no middle ground. We give evidence of our conversion by our, watch this, obedience. I mean, can it get any more like Hardcore this morning. Heaven, hell, obedience, disobedience. And we give evidence by our condemnation with our disobedience. When we clearly walk in defiance to Scripture and it doesn't bother us. Right? No conviction, no problem. Spurgeon said, an orthodox creed if it will not save if it stands alone. Without personal holiness, the caster out of devils will be cast out himself. Nothing will prove us to be true Christians, but a sincere doing of the Father's will. Mark, could you put verse 25 uh, back up there for me for just a moment? I want you to notice the last part of that phrase um, where it says, I said 25, I meant 21, I think. Sorry, I said it wrong. Ha! He would love to do that if I'd give you the right verse. 
Yeah, there it is. Thank you. The last part of the phrase where it says, just the one that does the will of my Father who's in heaven. What is it? What's God's will that he's talking about here? That seems like a very big word. All of God's will? Wow. I mean, God's will covers his providence in the universe. It covers ethics. It covers Jesus' death on the cross. But what Jesus is talking about here, he addresses directly in John chapter number six. Jesus says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What is it? Listen, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son believes in him should have eternal life. It is God's will. What's the will of God that he wants you to do? What's the will of God he wants you to submit to? To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. To abandon all hope that you have for self-sufficiency and cast yourself on the Lord. All of this in context on the Sermon on the Mount. Remember Jesus? Step, let's step back for just a moment because we've been dialed in pretty heavy. Let's step back for a moment. Think about Sermon on the Mount. He's calling those. He's putting designs on the disciples' lives saying, look, I want you to live differently than the Pharisees, right? Because they were hypocritical. He said, don't be hypocrites like the Pharisees who play the game in front of people and say all the right things, but they inwardly they're dead. And then the second part of the Sermon on the Mount, we saw a shift where he's having us push back. He's pushing back on the materialistic age, right? The Gentiles. He's saying, don't don't be addicted to all these things that culture and don't be blown about by everything culture has for you. Push back on that. Be mine, right? Resist both. Be authentic. Be mine. All of this flies in the face of that hypocrisy. All of this flies in the face of self-sufficiency. Cheap Grace has been preached in too many pulpits across this nation. Cheap grace, what is it? It it promises forgiveness without repentance. It promises church membership without discipline. It promises discipleship without obedience. Cheap grace promises blessing without persecution. It promises joy without righteousness. It promises results without obedience. You didn't hire a cheap grace preacher when you called me here. I'm here to preach the word of God that's been forever settled in heaven. I'm telling you, the Bible says that it's true whether you believe it or not. Jesus is all that he claimed to be and he's calling you to die to yourself and follow him. And the gospel is the only hope that we have to get there. This is the gospel of our glorious Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ. But the church has traded spectacle to turn out non-Christians at an alarming rate. We want things that look good on the screen, that sell good, that make good reports. We've lost converts and traded it for nominal Christians, Christians in name only. Uh, Let's draw this thing to a close. I'm gonna ask Julia to make her way down front Life's full of choices, full of choices. Some big decisions and some, I don't know how many, I'm sure there's a study on this, but how many thousands of decisions, little tiny decisions we make each day that set the course of our day and cause us, like if I wouldn't have gotten up on that side of the bed or hit the snooze for the 15th time on time change morning. No, nobody here, right? But if I wouldn't have done that, would I have had a better morning? I don't know, all those little decisions, life's full of that. And then there are moments in life when we come to forks in the road. 
big things. It's like we've come to a T intersection. We can't keep going the way that we're going. We've got to turn left or we've got to turn right. There was one of those in Joshua 24. When Joshua said to them, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the God of our fathers or the God of these pagan nations. Choose you this day whom you're going to serve. In Psalm 1, the psalmist said, choose the way of righteousness or the way of the wicked. Proverbs 15 calls us to choose the way of the slacker or the way of the upright. Moses in Deuteronomy 30 would stand before the children of Israel and say, choose life. (laughs) Choose blessing, not death and curse. Choose life. Love the Lord your God. Obey Him. Remain faithful to Him, for He is your life. In today's text, we've come to a hard T intersection with a brick wall in front of us. Jesus clearly putting before us the questions, which way will you go? Will you choose the difficult way, the narrow gate that leads to eternal life, or the broad road that ends in eternal destruction? Jesus is asking us this morning, will you believe the truth or a lie? Will you choose the good tree with good fruit or the bad tree with bad fruit? Third question this morning, how will you stand before God at the judgment? Will you choose a genuine confession marked by obedience or a false profession which plagues the modern day church? The danger for some of us this morning sitting in this building and watching online is this. We hear a teaching through the Sermon on the Mount and we go, hmm, I need to try harder. I need to do a little better. Here's the problem. That brick wall that we come to is a billion feet high and you've got no ladder. You can't try hard. You can't keep going the way that you're going. There's no way forward down this path. You've got to go with Jesus or you've got to reject Jesus. When Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming this gospel, you know what he said? He said the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand and here's the recipe he gave. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent of what? Sounds like I'm wrong. You are wrong. When we're going our own way, we are rejecting God as ruler when we go the broad way. When we go that wide way, way we are living our own lives and hoping for the best we are positioning ourselves as enemies of the God who created everything and who stands as the righteous judge and it results in our death and it results in a judgment and woe but when we choose Jesus when we follow Jesus when we go God's way when we under conviction of the Holy Spirit and by the way God is the one doing that in your heart right now when we do that when we surrender and submit to the Lord Jesus Christ we we get Jesus as our ruler and we joyfully submit we rely on his death and resurrection to stand between us and this holy God. We stand forgiven by God and we receive a new life that lasts forever. The extraordinary news is that Jesus died as a substitute for rebels like us. We didn't deserve that. 
He took upon himself the judgment and the punishment that we deserved by dying on the cross in our place. Death is the punishment for rebellion and he died our death on the cross. All of this is completely undeserved by us. We rejected God, but God in his mercy sent his son to die for us. This morning, if you'll turn to God and ask for forgiveness, trust God as your savior and the resurrected ruler, everything changes. God wipes the slate clean. You're on the right road that's heading the right direction, tethered to the truth, and you'll stand before God forgiven. I wonder this morning, have you come to that dead end like the people Jesus was preaching to? Julia's going to play. I'm going to give you a moment to respond. Here's what you need to do. You need to talk to God. Maybe you'll pray to God and say something like this. God, I am a sinner and I need to be saved. Will you save me? I am a wretched sinner. I have been choosing my own way, God. And you've offered me this morning the path of life. And I can't pretend anymore. I can't fake this anymore. I'm going your way. Is that you? Pray that this morning. You say, I'll pray that, but I need help. I've got people that will help you pray this morning if you need them to. You get my attention. I'll put them on you. If you want to come forward this morning, this is Grace Covenant Church. Yep. If you want to come forward this morning, I'll meet you down front. Turn the microphone off and pray with you. It's that serious. You're not going to try harder. You see, you're either in the kingdom or you're not. You're either on the right road or you're not. There's no middle ground. Let's pray. now is the time the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe the gospel God it should be a reasonable response for each of us every time we come to your word to say I repent and I believe Lord thank you for the promise of the gospel thank you for the hope that we have thank you that your word is true that Jesus is all he claimed to be and that we have hope because you chose to convey this message to us, preserving it in a language we can understand in the Holy Scriptures, sealing it forever by your Holy Spirit and working in us to draw us to you. Father, we pray for fruit that remains, for genuine believers to be about your work, your way.
And we ask this in Jesus' name. Let the church say amen.